0: O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise... Let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Good morning. Really appreciate you uh, being here with us today. we got a lot of uh, our regular uh, attendees. A lot of our members are out of town. Some folks are sick. I think every other person in this church, maybe two out of every three is coughing. So I'm among them, but I'm on, I'm on the good side of it, the way out. Um, Daniel went home, I think, a few minutes ago with a fever. I felt like he was getting a fever um, after he taught class. So um, sorry about all that. We're, we're happy, though, that uh, we have a lot of folks here today who are visiting with us. That always lifts us up. Uh, we know you, there are a lot of ways you could be spending your time. And so um, you, some of you have come from a long way away, some, some right around the corner. Some are family members, some are friends, some are just uh, maybe curious folks who've happened by, and we want you to know that we're very grateful uh, and honored that you would take a piece of your valuable time to come be with us. Um, the reading that we just, uh, that Joseph just read for us, an excerpt from Psalm 107, um, is really just the, uh, the introductory and concluding stanzas or portions of those from this very long psalm we've left out the whole body of this 43 verse psalm and I've got the ellipsis there in red to remind you there's a whole chunk of text between verse three and verse 40 that I, you know, I don't want to take most of my time or a good bit of my time. Okay, a very small fraction of my time because I, I use it. Um, no, uh, I, we didn't have time to read all that. That's why I sent out the email the other day. hope you, you've been reading the psalm and meditating on it. But we're, we're just taking a, a piece from the first part at the beginning and a piece from the end And um, uh, you can still see, though, from this opening and concluding paragraph, what the theme of this psalm is. And it's a topic that is very much on the minds of people in our nation this time of year. And it's the topic of giving thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. And then in verse 43, after talking about thanking God for his steadfast love over and over and over in all these different situations, He says this whoever is wise verse 43 let him attend to these things this business of thanking God let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord so this whole psalm is about giving thanks and there's a lot of people giving thanks this weekend but it's not just about giving thanks is it it's about giving thanks to the Lord I don't know who people think think when if you don't believe there's somebody who gave you the thing. I, I don't know what that means. Maybe it means something. I, I appreciate a spirit of gratitude, but you know, probably some people sat around tables on Thursday and said, you know, we thank you, thank the universe. You know, you hear that more and more. The universe is trying to tell me this. So the, it's almost like that word has become a longer name for God, uh, among maybe spiritual folks who are, are seeking or, or know they feel something. You know. There's this sense that we need to give thanks. But this says give thanks to the Lord. And when we see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in an English version of the Bible, that tells us that it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the sort of personal name for God, which has the, the meaning of, of, of being. It's I am that I am. He just is. Doesn't Tense doesn't apply to him. Past, present, and future. Time doesn't apply to him. Being itself existence itself is God's name. And he says, we give thanks to that God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob and King David, and Jesus, and so on. The, the God that we read about in the pages of our, our, our scriptures. And um, it's more specific even than that. It's not just give thanks or give thanks to the Lord. What he's saying is give thanks to the Lord for a certain reason. And that reason is this. Because his steadfast love Endures forever. And that's really what this whole psalm is about. A call to thanking Yahweh, the Lord, because of this particular trait. His steadfast love endures forever. That's what the psalm begins with. That's what the psalm ends with. And the phrase, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, occurs four other times in this psalm. It's like a refrain, it's like a chorus. And you can see them there on the screen, verse 8, verse 15, verse 21, verse 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Okay? So this is what this psalm, Psalm 107, is all about. But this psalm is calling us to do something much more than just utter a particular phrase. Right? It's not like, you know, we teach little kids, but when they're trying to learn to say please and thank you, we'll sometimes say, say the magic word. Like, thank you is a magic word. Not really a magic word, but we're trying to start them somewhere. Um, He's not giving us some some magic incantation or something like that. This is about much more than merely being polite. This is a matter of life and death. And the conclusion of this psalm, verse 43, connects our thanking God for His steadfast love to the all-important biblical character, character trait of wisdom. After saying all this stuff about thanks thanking God for his steadfast love, it says whoever is wise, the person of wisdom will attend to these things, the things of this psalm. The things about thanking God, they will consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So, our message this morning is going to be called the wisdom of thanksgiving, not the American holiday, but the larger spirit Um, that hopefully, in a best-case scenario, is behind those kinds of sentiments. Gratitude to God for His steadfast love. Let's begin by um, trying to define our term. Um, Identifying, just asking whether we can actually even identify what this thing called steadfast love is. If thanking God for His steadfast love is so important, and that's the emphasis of this psalm, then we need to know it when we see it, right? I, I can't very well thank anybody for anything if I don't know it's around me. If I can't identify it or define it, what does it look like? That's kind of the point here. So let's begin by defining the term. Well, it's a Hebrew word uh, called chesed. We've, we've talked about that here a lot back when Matt was teaching here. I've mentioned this word in sermons, others have as well. Um, it occurs, uh, so there's the, the stanzas of steadfast love in the body. There's also, as we've seen, it's mentioned at the beginning and the end as well, kind of bookending the whole psalm steadfast love. The, all these instances come from this Hebrew word, which is pronounced chesed. Some people say chesed, like a, almost like a DTH on the end. I, I don't uh, know biblical Hebrew uh, very well at all, so I'm just parroting the different pronunciations. It's not, it's not cheesed. I promise you that. Stephen's like, amen. Word up. He hates cheese. It doesn't mean you've gotten cheesed by somebody. This is chesed. Steadfast love. It's translated a lot of different ways in our various English Bibles. It occurs 241 times in the Old Testament. 241 times. So this is a huge point of emphasis when the scriptures are describing the character, the attributes, the nature of God, what it says over and over and over again to the point of of, of complete redundancy. What it really wants us to get if we don't get anything else is that this God, Yahweh, is characterized by Fundamentally, he said, steadfast love. Now, if you're reading from the NIV, you may just have the word love. Okay, sometimes it's just translated love. I don't think that's quite gets all the, the nuances of the word personally, but you know, it, it, it does mean love, but it's, it says more than just that. Uh, if you're using the New American Standard Version, you'll probably see the word loving kindness. Uh, the old King James has just the word mercy a lot of times for this word because it, that, it does have an element of you're getting something you don't deserve. So does loving kindness because you're getting not just love in some abstract term or sense, but like it's kind. It's kind to you. It's gentle and tender. Um, it, it's caring, right? Kindness has that in it. Several other versions, and I really like this translation, New Living Translation, Holman, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, and several use the, the term faithful love. It doesn't wax and wane and come and go. It's not contractual. Um, It's just, it's unchanging, faithful. The word steadfast captures that too. Steadfast love, unfailing love. One version even translates it loyal love. So what's the meaning? Well, the meaning throughout all of its many occurrences in the Old Testament is God's covenant love for his people. A love that comes out of the covenant he made. Despite how they are and what they're like, He's committed to it. One Bible dictionary (coughs) uh, uh, describes it this way. For the word k said here's the entry. It says, It is God's sure love which will not let Israel go. He just won't let them go. All of Israel's persistent waywardness could never destroy it. Though Israel be faithless, yet God remains faithful still. This steady, Persistent refusal of God to wash his hands of his wayward people is the essential meaning of this Hebrew word chesed. So a short definition we might say it's God's unfailing love, it's God's covenant love. It's not a contract between you and God. You do your part, you get everything right, then he'll talk. That's that's almost the opposite idea. All right? People can do good things to you when you do good things to them. We call it business, right? that's all over the place and it predates capitalism it, it's it's human this is something different he he's a, he knows they're going to mess up they do mess up the whole story of the old testament is israel messing up repeatedly they abdicate their basic function to be a light to the nations does god's love go away no it's unfailing it is steadfast and that's the trait that we're talking about this morning Now, the the context of Psalm 107, let's go back into the text now. The context within Psalm 107, the actual language of Psalm 107 itself, also the context spatially of the 107th Psalm in the larger book of Psalms, the collection of Psalms, the Bible book called Psalms, the Psalter, its placement there, both of those two kinds of contexts, internal and its spatial placement, illustrate the point about God's unfailing steadfast love. Psalm 107 is the first psalm of, I mean, there's, there's five books in the Psalms. So if you look up the book of psalms, it'll have book one, there's a whole bunch of psalms, like poems, right, or songs. They sang these. And then there's book two, book three, book four, book five, five major divisions. Psalm 107 is the first psalm in the last book of psalms, book five. So it's on the cusp of four and five. Here's what's interesting. The previous book, uh, book 4, concludes from the perspective of being of Israel's being within exile. They're in captivity for all of their wickedness. They've gone into Babylonian captivity. They've lost their freedom. They've lost their homeland. Many of them don't know if God's with them anymore. And so Psalm uh, 106, which is the concluding psalm of, the, of book 4, basically... Uh, says as much. It's, they're, they're coming from being this perspective of being enslaved. So look at this one, Psalm 106. This is the psalm previous to the one we're looking at this morning. You can see what I'm talking about here. Verse 43, many times, it goes through this whole litany of things, very long psalm, and, and it says, uh, you know, Israel did this wrong, and they did this wrong, and they did that wrong, and God would do this nice thing, and they'd do this horrible thing. God would bless them with His grace, and they would just abuse it. It's, it's just one thing after another. It's not a very flattering psalm. And then, and so it says in verse 43 of Psalm 106, many times God delivered them over and over and over. He bailed them out. He came to their rescue. He saved them. But they were rebellious in their purposes and they were brought low through their iniquity. They disregarded as law. That's what iniquity means, lawlessness. And so they cry out near the end of this psalm, the end of book four, save us, O Lord our God and gather us from among the nations. They've been dispersed throughout the nations in captivity. They're in exile. They're homeless. They're wayward. They are aimless and hopeless, and they're begging God to gather them back and end this exile. That's Psalm 106. Psalm 107 is the first psalm in Book 5. Book 5 is written from the perspective of having returned from exile. It assumes they're back. In fact, Psalm 107 does that. Here's the first three verses. We'll read them again. Psalm 107. First Psalm in the book five, the last book of Psalms. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. What kind of trouble? Gathered them in from the lands. The very thing Psalm 106 was saying, please do, God. He's gathered them in from all this dispersion, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. God has done that. And so this psalm is inaugurating a new section of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, saying God has been faithful despite Israel's repeated, systemic faithlessness, rebellion, disobedience. That's what they brought to the table. And Yahweh loved them still. His love was steadfast. It was loyal to his covenant. It was faithful to his character. So you can see just the context of where Psalm 107 is illustrates that. But God's unfailing steadfast love for his wayward people is also the context inside Psalm 107, the actual language of this psalm internally. Um, The body of this psalm is composed of four seemingly hopeless situations brought on by the people's own sin, by Israel's own sin. So there's four chunks that sort of repeat themselves with four different bad scenarios, each of which, three of which clearly, and one of which probably, sounds like they did this to themselves, right? We often have this idea that, well, we get good things if we act right, right? If we just get our act together, then God would bless us. This is almost the opposite of that. Because they don't have their act together, right? They keep on messing up. They haven't gotten any better. They can't clean up the mess they've made. They can't sleep in the bed, you know, uh, lie in the bed. What's that thing? Whatever it is. Um, That one. Yeah, they can't do that. Those are great sayings. But we get ourselves in pickles where we can't do that. What does God say? Too bad. No, not while you're alive, He doesn't. He comes to your rescue because His love is unfailing. And that's really what Psalm 107 is going to say over and over again. Here, here are, here, here's the point of these four major sections in the body of the psalm. Hopefully you've already read it. I don't have time to read it today. But just to, to sort of briefly you know, uh, extrapolate a point from it, I think the point, is basically this. Humans, Israel in this case, and ourselves today, we sin, and because of that, we suffer. We get ourselves in trouble. Here and now, trouble, eternal trouble. We, sin is destructive to ourselves and to those around us. But guess what? Nobody doesn't do it. Um, so that's kind of the axiom. That's where the Bible starts. It, it didn't even have in play this idea that we can, you know, we, we avoid. Well, we could argue all day long over whether we're able or not. It becomes a moot question at some point since the Bible about 50 times says nobody does it. There is none righteous, no, not one. I mean, how many of those are there? <laughs> I've got a collection of them in my Bible, in my notes back here. 25, 30 places I found where it says you, you will not do this. Now, we could argue whether it, theoretically, could you know, get into the whole Calvinism, Armenia. We're not. It becomes moot. It, it, you know, if you're a volitional agent you, you, and you're accountable, that's where you are. And that's where the Bible starts. We sin. We suffer. God's response is faithful love. And out of that faithful love, he delivers us. So, each of these four sections starts with some. Some people wandered in desert waste, finding no way to, to, a, to a city to dwell in. And it says they were hungry and thirsty. Everything was a parched wilderness. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them. That's 4 through 9. Psalm 107, verses 10 through 16 says, Some, another group of people, sat in the darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and death. It talks about being in irons and behind bars. It's a picture of them being in a dungeon, maybe in Babylon. And they cried out to the Lord, and he delivered them. Then it says in a kind of vague way, some were fools in their sinful ways and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. It sounds like people who got sick and it goes on to say they didn't have any appetite anymore. They were wasting away. So picture some sort of sin which literally physically afflicts you and its consequences. But they cried to the Lord and he delivered them. So that's our third group of some people who sinned and suffered and cried out and God delivered them. that's 107, verses 17 through 22. The fourth group, it says some went down to the uh, the sea in ships, and it says they went out to do their business. It doesn't particularly say they sinned, but it says when storms arose and their boat was going up to the heavens and down to the depths, the, the waves were so huge. Picture the movie The Perfect Storm, but your ship's made out of wood, Right? And you don't have you know, charts and GPSs and that kind of stuff. You're, 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 you think it's over. They cry out to the Lord because it says their wisdom failed them. They came to their wisdoms. And so maybe the sin here, if it's following suit with the other three, is that they were trusting in their own wisdom. We're just going to go do business. We're in charge of the world. We can do whatever we want. Maybe it's a little too prideful. And they didn't count on what might happen. And so they cry out to the Lord. Guess what? The Lord delivered them. That's basically what this psalm is. That's the pattern four times. We sin. We get in trouble. God's steadfast love causes Him to deliver us when we turn to Him and cry to Him for deliverance. And so the context of the psalm itself, the context of the psalm's spatial arrangement in the book of Psalms, both make the point about the steadfast love Of the Lord each of these times look what it says afterwards at the conclusion of each of these four sections Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love verse 8 That's the appropriate response You sin you get in trouble. You deserve your trouble. I deserve my trouble You cry to the Lord though, he delivers you don't forget about it. Thank him for his steadfast love verse 8 Verse 15, verse 21, verse 31. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's the point of this psalm. All right. Why, though, is it so important to thank God for His unfailing love? Why is that important? Let me suggest to you that it's because if we make thanksgiving a continual habit, a practice, a discipline... That itself helps us to see God's blessings. There's a connection between the discipline of being thankful, trying to find things to thank God for, be more observant habitually on the one hand, and on the other hand, appreciating the steadfast love of God. How can we come to see God's steadfast love? It's always there. Well, the answer is to give thanks to God. It sounds like a catch-22, like I'm making a circular point here. And, and it's some, there's a circularity, a reciprocal kind of relationship between these two things. But it, it is true that the practice, the discipline of thanking God, counting our many blessings one by one, is the thing that helps us see the blessings. That's where the appreciation or the ability to see comes from. I mean, you know, we can know about a thing, know what it is, We're able to identify it theoretically, you know, if we saw it, it might be all around us. That thing might be all around us. But if we don't have eyes to see it, what does it matter? Right? I mean, there are things that can be there all the time, all along, but they may as well not be there if we've lost the ability to see them. In the 17th century, this is probably a weird illustration, but I don't know why my brain thought of it. It did. Um, because of the, the, the development of a lot of uh, powerful, for, for them, they're not powerful by our standards, but powerful microscopes. New thing, right? I mean, the Romans had a kind of microscope, but this was a new thing in terms of degree and the, the ability to grind lenses and the technology. In the 1600s, with people like uh, Antony van Leeuwenhoek and Robert Hooke of, of Holland and England, respectively, people began to see the world of microbes. All of a sudden, this whole world came to life below the lens of their microscope. Cells. Uh, uh, Van Leeuwenhoek is, is called the father of microbiology. Now you can go to UNC or NC State or Duke and there's a whole chunk of people, several buildings dedicated to this field now called microbiology. They, they believe these things that we cannot see are real. I'm assuming you do too, because you went and got an antibiotic this week, half of you. <laughs> We would never have that had we not had these, this you know, breakthrough. Were microbes new in the 1600s? Were cells just now coming into the world? No, they've been there forever. But they developed the ability to see them. And that's what I'm talking about. The practice or habit or discipline of thanking God for His many acts of loving kindness is the thing that give us a, gives us the lens, the eyes to see the blessings in the first place. And this psalm concludes with this exhortation to approach the business of thanksgiving with intentionality. It's not an afterthought. As we've seen, the whole psalm has repeatedly encouraged those who've delivered, who've been delivered by God to thank the Lord for his steadfast love, right? Let them thank him. Let him thank the Lord for his steadfast love over and over and over again. Then the final exhortation, the takeaway of the psalm, if you will, verse 43, says this. Whoever is wise, let them attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. There are two verbs here I want to focus in on for a second. He says that we are to attend to this business of thanking God for this trait. And we're to consider This trait, the unfailing love of the Lord. Attend to it and consider it. The word attend to is from the Hebrew word shamar. And it is a word which means to guard, to take heed, to keep watch, even to preserve. It's the very verb given to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 2.15 when they're told to cultivate the garden and to watch it. The second of the two, your version may say something different. To watch it and to keep it. It's the second one. And you remember, they had a job. There's this myth out there that work came after the fall. No, it didn't. Work was in, work's part of our, our identity. We're, we're built to work. The very last thing said about humans in the Bible in Revelation is they shall reign. That's an active verb forever and ever. We're going to reign with God. And that's exactly what, same Greek word, if you look at the Septuagint version, the very first thing said to humans in Genesis 1 is I want you to... Have dominion with me, Adam and Eve. Reign. And one of the ways they did that, the most specific information we have in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account is to preside over the garden. And they were to take heed to the garden, preserve it, protect it, watch it closely. Do that with regard to the business of thanksgiving. It's that important. What if Adam and Eve had abdicated? Well, I guess you could argue they kind of did. That's consequential, no? The second verb is to consider the he said, the steadfast love of the Lord. And this verb means to understand or to uh, obtain intelligence about or to become deeply informed about a thing. So he's telling us to become, uh, you know, sort of schooled in, in the, the appreciation of the steadfast love of the Lord. That's a thing we should be really informed about. And both of these have the basic idea of, hey, you know what? Pay attention to this. Take a deep dive into this business of thanking God for His basic trait of steadfast love. Cultivate an appreciation for this. It doesn't happen automatically. You've got to pay attention to it. You've got to cultivate that. You've got to come to learn to see by, by ha- habit And by practice, God's hand in your life and God's hand in the world, God's hand in the processes of nature, God's hand in all the songs we just sang, uh, the the, the stanzas, the, the phrases are designed to make us think more carefully and slowly. We need to slow down as a people. We need to read the Bible slower. We need to watch the world slower. We are so obsessed with efficiency and we don't realize that it is an idol of this modern age. A lot of things are missed that are super important in the name of efficiency. Efficient for what? To get more mass acquired to put under your property? I have more things than you do. Wow. What? Another entry on your CV? For what though? If I kept asking for what? What's that for? What's that for? At some point, I'm going to push you back to go, you know what? I don't really know. Right? What about the things that really matter? God's power, God's beauty, God's brilliance, God's goodness, God's truth. What if all that's lost on us? Not because it's not there. It's always been there. Walk out in the woods and see it. Feel it when you hug your baby. Watch a transformed life by Jesus in this church. The chills you feel when we sing these hymns praising God, that's it. It's everywhere. But what if we haven't developed the skill to appreciate it? When I was a kid, like fifth and sixth grade, I think it was. You can ask my mom to clarify later, but I think I was in the fifth or sixth grade, Presbyterian Christian Academy, Bible, Arkansas. Once a year, I think it was. I think I went twice. Maybe it was fifth and sixth grade. That's the, the furthest that school went. They would take the little boys and girls in the sixth grade and fifth grade and, and, and a big event, go, up, go down to Memphis, hour and a half away, go to the Orpheum Theater, this real ornate, old theater, and we would all have suits and ties and dresses on. We'd go to some fine dinner somewhere, and then we'd go to the opera. Arkansas kids at the opera. And before they went, there was a whole lot of teaching on it. Like, this is Carmen. Here are the characters, and you're not going to know the words because all opera's in Italian, and all this stuff, you know? And you're just, yeah, okay? And I'm sure some kids got it. I, I never, it was kind of wasted on me. I was too much in a hurry. I wanted to, like, there needed to be swords and balls and running, and, you know, I just was I, was, I was a boy, a southern boy. I don't know if all boys are that way everywhere. Probably not. There's probably a lot of culture in that, but there's probably some biology, too. At any rate a lot of it was wasted on me. It wasn't that the opera wasn't doing what operas do, and for a an, an aficionado, a, a, a one who can appreciate opera, it was probably beautiful. For me, it was just cutting up and waiting for this thing to be over. Yeah. The same thing goes with art. You can take a person to the greatest art collections in the world. You can go to, you know, the, the Louvre or um, the Musée d'Orsay or the Met or all these places, um, and, and if you're if you're not schooled enough to appreciate painting, then it's like taking a goat in there. I mean, but if you start learning a little bit about the use of you know, technique and light and texture and the life of the artist behind the painting and the relationships he or she had and the cultural and historical you know, milieu from which that came, and what it says about what's going on in the world, it comes alive. Even for a person who's not like art oriented. When I study that kind of stuff before I go to an art, and read the little, I'm like interested all of a sudden. And I'm certainly no aficionado. Yes, yeah, so a lot of you know I like to fly fish, I don't have to get to do it as much as you to, but I love to go up in the mountains, go to some little tiny stream and catch wild trout. Rhododendrons, fall leaves, waterfalls, the fish are about that long. Every now and then there'll be a 12-inch one. Not a one of them stocked. They're all wild. They're incredibly skittish. You have to stock them like an elk. I'm on my knees sideways wearing green. You go like that, you'll never see a fish. It's a different place. but it's. I remember talking to people about it when I used to do it a lot. and They'd be, why would you do that? You can go out here to this lake over here and catch way more fish per hour. Than, yeah, I could go to a market and buy them. I'm wondering, is the goal more meat per time, efficiency? I, that's really boring to me. But knowing about why this fish is eating that insect and picking up a rock and going, oh, that's the larva of a caddisfly. And I got a number 15 caddisfly of that color in my... I just tied before I came. And you, you learn about the life cycle and the way the stream flows and where they're typically you know, going to be, and what lie they're going to be in because of the eddy and all this stuff. And... You know, you, you you start to see the nature around it, and the beauty of it is becomes this whole world that opens up if you spend a little time in it. Football's that way. You ever watch football with somebody who's never watched football or doesn't know what football is? Like, are they just running into each other? No, that is a perfectly designed and executed triple option. It is a thing of exquisite beauty. What's wrong with you? That's me. Stephen? Amen. Food. You can go through drive through windows and just get. Give me a pound of food for $5. It may not actually be food. Or you can learn about how people really cook and what real ingredients that come out of the earth are. I mean, everything's like this, really. When we're thinking about thanking, when we're thinking about thanking God, we've got to be people who slow down and thank Him so that we can appreciate that he's doing all these things and being all these things and namely his steadfast love in the first place. So we can see it. Thanking God for his examples and instances of loving kindness, steadfast love, actually helps us see those instances. It opens that world up for us if we're practicing the discipline of gratitude. But Let me make one more point, it's not just about seeing when it comes to thanksgiving to God for His unfailing love, it's not just about seeing it. This psalm also has something about saying it. Saying it. <coughs> Proclaiming God's steadfast love. I'll draw you back now to Psalm 107 and verse 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Part of thanksgiving, the way God wants it done, is proclaiming it. And you'll notice the heading here. A lot of psalms don't have a heading. Some of them have a heading. This comes to us from the original scripture. This one actually has a heading, which is the same words. It's the point of the psalm. We need to say it. The redeemed of God need to say so. So let me talk to you about spreading the word. God calls us to speak to others about His Majesty and glorious deeds of deliverance. You gonna help Miss Joanne? Okay, okay Miss Joanne. These folks are gonna help you outside and pray for you, and we'll pray for you again at the end of the service. And we're gonna go carry on with the. We will. A lot of us have bronchitis, so we feel for you. We're going to be praying for you. Thanks, John and Cindy. So, I mean, this is probably pretty obvious to those of us who know that Christianity has a, a, an evangelistic component, a, a missional component, that we should not keep these things to ourselves, right? We're to proclaim it. We're to spread the word. We're, God calls us to speak to others about His, His deeds of deliverance, His majesty, His beauty, His love. We see this in this psalm down in verse 32. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol in the congregation of the people. He doesn't just say, just meditate about this. Say it in the congregation. Praise him in the assembly of the elders. Like go to public, there's a public component, a public aspect to thanksgiving. In Psalm 145, and this kind of language is all over the Psalms. In fact, the phrase, um, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his loving kindness endures forever, is in lots of Psalms, right? Psalm 145 would be one of these. And look what it says here, talking about the public, proclamatory kind of uh, aspect of thanksgiving. One generation, Psalm 145, verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare. A word of proclamation. One generation is supposed to be the herald to the next generation. You know, one of our jobs is to convey to our kids and to the next generation after us, generation after generation after generation, that God is a God of mighty deeds. He's a God of abundant goodness, as verse 7 puts it. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. They shall sing aloud of your righteousness. God's justice. He's the one who puts things right. The broken world that causes us so much angst and hardship and sorrow. God is a God who's addressing that. And we're supposed to declare that. Sing it aloud. Pour it forth. I want to tell you one more thing about this and then we're going to wrap up for this morning. There's something else really interesting to me about telling people about God's steadfast love, the act of publicly you know, sharing this or proclaiming it. There's another interesting component to that besides just the responsibility to make sure that we're apprising our neighbors and loved ones of this ultimate truth about the nature of our God. And that is this, that proclaiming God's goodness actually completes our own enjoyment of God's goodness. There's something about telling it or saying it that helps us appreciate it more. This point is kind of shades over from the last one, kind of seamlessly. I know that may sound odd, but there's a sense in which until you're talking about something and sharing it, you don't really enjoy it as much as you could. You're selling yourself short. So for the selfish folks in this church, all of us, really, from God's perspective, honest person there, Luke. Here, here's some incentive. If you really want to grasp the goodness of God, you need to open your mouth and talk about it because that's how we express joy. God's loving, marvelous works inspire wonder. Look what it says here in, in Psalm 145, Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. That's actually supposed to be Psalm 107, our psalm for today. Verse 22. Let us tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Psalm 107 verse 22 says that we're to tell of God's glorious deeds in songs of joy. We bring ourselves joy when we tell other people, when we sing to other people about God's awesome deeds. That's that's a joy-inducing experience. You ever felt that when you sing in here? I mean, you could know that intellectually outside. The same exact idea of that song. You just go, here's a proposition, do you affirm that? Yes, I do. And it does nothing like what it does when you sing it to other people out loud. For you, selfishly, right? Chills, tears. You're like ready to take on the world. And it's a song, so that's public. I don't think he's talking about singing in the shower here, right, if you've got a minute by yourself, no. Proclaim it, sing a song of joy. And God's marvelous works. The expressions of His loving kindness inspire wonder. That's the word used. I keep putting the wrong psalm here. That's 107 again. I had 45 hanging over from a previous slide. Uh, Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. Psalm 107, verse 8. And also repeated in 15, 21, and 31, as we've already seen, the four, you know, some people were lost. They cried out, God came through. He delivered them in His steadfast love. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. For His, notice this, wondrous works. God's works are works of wonder. They're things of wonder. That's not just a throwaway word from a thesaurus. He could have said mighty works. That's a word the Hebrews had. It's in this psalm. He could have said good works. There's a thousand words, adjectives. This is chosen specifically to capture the idea that God's works are inherently wonder-inspiring. They're awe-inspiring. They, they, are, they are marvelous. Have you ever noticed how, when you experience something that is wonder inspiring, that something that is sublime, something that is like just remarkably beautiful, just jaw droppingly awesome, that when you experience that, you have a, a kind of just a, a, an urge that comes from within you to talk about it, to tell people about it. You think anybody goes to see Yosemite and maybe tells people at the office the next week about it? What happened on your big... Ah, we went went out in the woods a little bit. A few hours from here. No, it's like mind-numbingly beautiful. And God did it. And we have an urge to... You you should hear this song, this new band. Right? You can't not talk about it. What's Instagram for? (laughs) Check out the wonderful things. That's relative. Well, it's wonderful sometimes, but... Look at this, these things I've curated that I like to look at and I'd like for you to know about. I mean, it's social media, right? There's a social component to the joy that comes from thanking God or thanking anybody. We want to talk about it. We want to share the experience with others. Um, I'm going to use here an illustration from uh, C.S. Lewis, and then we're going to quit. C.S. Lewis, in his book uh, on the Psalms, um, talks about how he, you know, he was an unbeliever when he was uh, younger before he you know became the c.s lewis we all know of he and he talks about that in some of his writings he went through a period of i think he had kind of a skeletal faith uh you know kind of a traditional inherited faith from a little bit when he was a boy but then he lost that as he became a young man and went through a period of agnosticism or something like that and one of the things that really irked him about the psalms in particular as he'd read through these is how many times he was really put off by this god continually called on people to praise him. And that was odd to him and it sounded arrogant. It sounded self-centered. Like God was more interested in himself than he was in other people. Like, why does he keep saying, praise me, praise me, but I want you to be humble like me. Praise me, praise me, praise me. And that for, for years was a problem It was really stuck in his craw. Until he realized that God was instructing us to praise him, not because God needed it, Sometimes we think God needs what we can bring. The Bible says over and over, he needs nothing we can bring. He's omni-everything. If he did, he wouldn't be God. He'd be a pagan God who needs your little you know, oblation or a sacrifice or incantation or, 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 or whatever. But, but God doesn't need us to praise him because it's something he needs. He asks us to praise him because it's something we need. He noted that humans always everywhere, believer and unbeliever, no matter what situation they're in, are always expressing their adoration. Lovers, to you know, one to the other, you're so beautiful. Your hair is like this, your eyes are like that. You can't not. Appreciation for this and that, devotion for this and that, anything that we find wonderful, we naturally talk about. From opera, to deer hunting, to football, to cooking, to whatever it is. He said this in Reflections on the Psalms. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. You follow that? It's not just, oh, I'm enjoying it all the way and I can either express it or not. No, no, you don't really enjoy it all the way until... You express until you you express the joy because that act of expressing it completes the joy. It is the appointed consummation of the joy. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It is frustrating, he says, to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch. You ever had that experience? You're hanging out with people who just don't get it? People who don't get deserts? I get deserts. I do. I've been in them in Arizona, New Mexico, and California, and I think this is starkly beautiful. I don't know if I want to live here, but remarkably beautiful. Don't you... Don't you find it a little bit of a joy damper when you're around people who kind of don't get it and they're just like, nerd, or whatever, you know? Let's move on to the stuff that matters, like getting 12 pounds of food for $1.99 at the window. <laughs> Efficiency, right? Getting more people to like me. Why? Well, where will that go? Because they'll like me, but why? Really, you've replaced your all for God with your all for yourself. You're, we're wired for worship. And I'll go ahead and tip my hat. This is, in this general area, is gonna be the theme for 2020. Um, but we don't have all the stuff ready for the launch yet. So we'll be talking about that more. But uh, I, I think Thanksgiving is, is of cosmic importance. Because what we're doing when we thank God is we're acknowledging who He is and how beautiful and important He is and how much we utterly depend upon that steadfast love which is so constant, so unlike our love and our devotion. And without it, we're dead. And thanking him for it not only helps us enjoy it more, but it helps us see it more. And it tells the rest of the world around us what they're really longing for. Um, So thanks for your attention this morning. Uh, We will now uh, sing a a song that's been chosen. Nick's gonna lead us in the song. And then uh, after that, we'll have some announcements in a closing prayer. Once again, we're thankful you were here with us today. If anything here that we've done or said or sung or prayed or taught is not clear, uh, we would love the opportunity to sit down with you and talk about it, set up a Bible study, answer a question if we can. Um, we, don't, you know, we don't have all the answers all, all the time, but we believe they're in here, and so we will look for them with you. And uh, be thrilled to do that. So let us know how we can help you by coming to the front. or one of these interior chairs. As together, we all stand and sing.